Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is For Love of Money, the Opportunism of Libertarians. I love America. We open with David Byrne's Miss America from the 1997 album Feelings. new book, Capitalism Versus Freedom. Today's guest, Rob Larson, goes after the high priests of capitalism. Those deep thinkers such as Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, and Ayn Rand. But more directly and pointedly, Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist and debate society pugilist who did the heavy PR work for Reagan era deregulation and who offered the right wing business roundtable rationale for corporate power and greed. Rob Larson is a professor of economics at Tacoma Community College in Washington State and author previously of Bleakonomics, a heartwarming introduction to financial catastrophe, the jobs crisis, and environmental destruction. In Larson's new book, he quotes liberally from Friedman's own 1962 volume, Capitalism and Freedom, as well as the book Friedman penned with his wife Rose, Free to Choose, which was also made into a 10-part television series in 1980. Using their own words to condemn them, Larson exposes these intellectual opportunists for what they are, defenders of cruel power systems. Men and women such as these once supported slavery, the divine right of kings, and Nazism. And Rob Larson puts the libertarian defense of capitalism on the same list. Capitalism is indefensible as a system that promotes freedom, no matter how folks like Milton Friedman define the word. And as we careen toward climate disaster with no political will to take action, we must find a way to speak with one voice and declare that money is not freedom, and that power is not the ultimate aim of every man or woman. That is the call of the capitalists, and they are ruthless. Further, we must be very clear about what can offer us a path forward, even if the best we might do now is marginally mitigate impending catastrophe. For Rob Larson, socialism is that path. And now, for love of money, on Interchange on WFHB. joining us today on Interchange, Rob Larson. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks, Doug. Oh, great. Hey, Rob, I'm going to start out um, this show with um, Reagan, actually, to begin with. Now, this is an introduction to the Free to Choose uh, video series that Milton Fried- Friedman and his wife Rose did. So let's, let's play that first, and then we'll go from there. In 1980, a friend of mine did something of rare importance that some historians might miss. Dr. Milton Friedman, a scientist, a careful thinker, and a great teacher, first presented his TV series, Free to Choose. 
His TV series was about choices, risks, freedom, equality, and making a better future for all of us. In 1976, the 200th birthday of our nation, Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize, in economics. 200 years earlier, in the same year as the Declaration of Independence, Adam Smith, the Scotsman, published a book titled The Wealth of Nations. The United States was the first country to apply the ideas in Adam Smith's book. Those ideas have led to our prosperity and given us our freedom. In Free to Choose, Milton Friedman shows us how those ideas can help us today. Again, that was President Ronald Reagan introducing Free to Choose, a video series that Milton Friedman and his wife Rose produced as part of, I guess, to go along with their book, Free to Choose as well. It's a 10-part series. We're going to hear a few clips uh, tonight. Uh, Rob, uh, Reagan has has got to be on the tops of your list as greatest presidents. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's just a tough choice these days. Like Trump, Reagan, who is the best? It's These are the good problems you want to have, right? <laughs> right. Uh it's nice there in that clip that uh, Reagan uh said uh, Freeman won a peace prize. Yes, uh it's I love that moment, that little introduction, yeah, that the sitting US president taped for uh yeah, to introduce Milton Friedman's uh and his wife's uh, PBS series uh because it's such a short little segment, you know, it's like 25 seconds long and he manages in a very Reagan-esque fashion. He manages, even in that small window, to fit in a major error. Friedman, of course, (laughs) did not win the Nobel Peace Prize. He won the Nobel Prize in economics, which is itself kind of hilarious. But that's... uh you, you got to admire that high error per minute rate. Yeah, it was. It's nice. So throughout, we'll uh, we'll listen to some of the uh, that actual series clips from Friedman's introductions to each of those those ten episodes. Now, Rob, uh, you've got a book as as the introdu- introduction made plain: Capitalism versus Freedom: The Toll Road to Serfdom. Uh, and I I think your goal in this book is to show how capitalism actually inhibits freedom rather than promoting it, as claimed. And you open the book making it clear how we're to understand freedom. Can you boil down uh, what it is that you're trying to talk about when you think about freedom? For sure, man. Yeah. Uh, So if you take a look at just that first couple page introduction in the book there, uh, the first thing I just want to do for readers is to give them, yeah, a very short version of how uh, different thinkers have kind of chopped up the idea of freedom and the different kinds Uh, of it that they've ascertained. So the short version, yeah, is that there's basically two broad sort of uh, realms of freedom is the idea. Uh, So on the one hand, uh, you have negative freedom or negative liberty. And this is sometimes described as your freedom from uh, other people or institutions telling you what to do. So when you, uh, so for example, with the, the government, right, you have to pay certain taxes, you have to do that. And if you don't pay them, you can go to jail. Okay, well, those are examples of the state using its power to tax and indeed to imprison criminals uh, to violate or maybe limit people's negative freedom or their negative liberty. So that's sort of the uh, one of the traditional versions of it. The other one uh, sometimes gets called positive freedom. And this is understood to be like your freedom to do different things. So, for example, if you're a uh, Bernie Sanders supporter and you support uh, the Medicaid – 
excuse me, the uh, Medicare for All uh, Universal Health Plan Initiative. That would be a policy program that represents a positive freedom idea. If you're a child born into a country very much wealthy enough to afford health care for everybody, you might say that since it's affordable, everyone should have a right to basic health care. Okay, that's your freedom too. You should be free to consume some healthcare services because it's available and at least it's a possibility. So those would be your two basic realms, positive and negative freedom. And the idea is if you look at thinkers like we're discussing today, Milton Friedman and also uh, Frederick Hayek and others who I look at uh, in my book, the sort of idea is that they suggest that negative freedom is the one you want. You want to be free from powerful institutions telling you what to do. And uh, the marketplace, capitalism, is supposed to provide that negative freedom because, after all, when you want to go shop and uh, buy some clothes or a new car or a computer, you have a number of possibilities available to you, different brands, different retail sources. So you have those different fr that freedom to choose within the marketplace and also to choose what kind of career you ultimately want to go into. And so they suggest that markets and capitalism provide that negative freedom, but it, markets don't provide positive freedom or positive liberty. And Friedman and Hayek think that's fine because they suggest that positive freedom, this is how people become entitled and think they have a right to things like education or healthcare. And this is a way that government then will need to tax us to pay for that. So we lose negative freedom from it. So their idea is that markets provide negative freedom, which is the one you want. And even you know liberals and most people would agree that markets provide that negative freedom, but not positive freedom. My book says that it's actually a little worse than that. Markets don't provide either of these kinds of freedom because, again, negative freedom is about being free from powerful institutions and people. And if we look at the record, capitalism produces a huge amount of those. So I think it's difficult to say that either of these ideas of liberty fit within our economic system. Hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Rob Larson, author of Capitalism Versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom, published by Zero Books. We're looking closely at libertarian intellectuals like Milton Friedman, Friedman and what they say <laughs> about the Friedman. <laughs> it's going to be rough tonight. The freedoms yeah. we enjoy under capitalism, although uh, Rob is saying that we don't enjoy freedoms under capitalism. So, Rob, this is a direct attack on two books generally, I guess, in terms of your title. Capitalism versus Freedom uh, is meant to play off of Friedman's own book, Capitalism and Freedom from 1962, as well as uh, Friedrich Hayek's 1944 book, The Road to Serfdom, and you've got The Toll Road to Serfdom. Uh, so uh, are you uh, consciously then working to set, uh, set yourself against these two particular books and their particular ideas of, of government? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, obviously, the ideas themselves are what we care most about. and That's what most of the length of the book looks at. But I have to say, it's true. If you're a, you know, young college student, and you start to criticize the way our economic system works or become skeptical of it, very quickly, these books are going to end up in your hand. And when I was a undergraduate at Indiana University in Bloomington, back in the late 90s, <laughs> I was young at one time. But back then, uh, if you criticize the system, very quickly a business major or another conservative young person is going to give you those books. And that's how I first encountered them. And I have to say, though, they really are relevant uh, 20 years later. If you go to the Breitbart.com online store, uh, which I'm sure your listeners do all the time, mm. 
if you check that out, if you go to that bookstore, you'll find both of these books are listed there. Like they haven't, um, they definitely haven't lost their relevance to the right. And they definitely do uh, sort of represent foundational texts for conservatives. The first thing I do in my book actually is I just review how important these books are seen to be by conservatives. You have Reagan introducing Friedman's TV show, and he also wrote a book jacket blurb for, I think, the Free to Choose volume. Uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh has talked about how Friedman's uh, book, Capitalism and Freedom, should be like the beginning of every young person's economic education. Mm. So I've found that I can go after these ideas pretty aggressively just by targeting these two books. They're kind of instantiations of it. Right, right. So it's an interesting thing because um, uh, I think also 1962 saw the uh, publication of uh, James Buchanan's Calculus of Consent. So you've got uh. that kind of neoliberal world order being, uh, being I guess, uh, force-fed to us in some sense. But as you say, created uh, um, a backbone of, of, I guess, right-wing propaganda that has continued to be the, the basis for how people start to have these conversations. Literally throughout, you, you generally note that there's very little in terms of actual research, citations, um, actual you know, examples from any other perspective. Uh, so these are basically maybe highbrow Bill O'Reilly books. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, actually, that specific analogy is usually one I make for the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> okay. uh, the Economist, I read that thing every day. And if you pick up my book, you'll see that by far the, the source, other than these books I'm going after, the source I refer to more than anything else is the Wall Street Journal. It's mm-hmm. very conservative. Uh, its business reporters are extremely uh, conscientious. You know, they have to, they clearly feel they need to accurately report what's happening in markets so that executives and investors and managers who are mostly who read the Wall Street Journal, so they'll be able to make good business decisions based on that. But if you read the Wall Street Journal's editorial page, like half the time it contradicts the actual journalism and just makes all these predictable right wing points, but in a more highbrow, yeah, sort of national review level way. So I've actually said in the past, yeah, the journal's editorial page, it's kind of Fox News with AP English. <laughs> but it's true. Also, the first thing that you said, uh, if you pick up, uh, yeah, again, Friedman's book, which again is seen to be a, you know, an economic bible almost on the right, according to themselves. That book has, I mean, it's, uh, it's been. I used to know this exact number by heart because it annoyed me so much. But it's got less than twenty footnotes in the whole book, whereas like the introduction of my book has more than that. And partially, this is because you know it's seen to be sort of a foundational book. And I will say Friedman's other books, like Free to Choose, which he wrote with his wife Rose, uh, and Hayek's books are a little bit less irresponsible Hmm. in their total lack of footnoting. But if you read, as a result of that, you read Capitalism and Freedom, it reads like a list of just conservative demands. Like, here's how this works, here's how this works, here's how this works. No recourse to journalism or business analysis or anything like that. It uh, definitely makes it feel a little flimsier to read, I have to Mm -hmm. say. Well, it's one of those points Chomsky makes all the time that uh, the business press does give you accurate information and it's it is an interesting uh, dichotomy that the the opinion pages are like the cartoons for people right Uh, (laughs) so uh we need to go to a break right now this is uh money machine by james taylor from the 1976 album in the pocket more with rob larson on capitalism's toll road to serfdom when interchange returns Money, 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 money
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Rob Larson is our guest. He's the author of Bleakonomics, and his new book is Capitalism Versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom, published by Zero Books. Uh, we've been talking about Milton Friedman in particular, but also Friedrich Hayek and the uh, litany of right-wing apologists for capital. Uh, we're going to start this segment with William F. Buckley revealing what he understands the consequences of freedom are. This is from ABC's 1968 Republican convention debate between Bill Buckley, founder of the right-wing National Review, and novelist S.A.S. Gore Vidal. This is taken from a 2015 documentary, Best of Enemies. Gore Vidal speaks first. The subject for William Buckley and Gore Vidal tonight, beyond the nomination. What issues can the Republicans use effectively to win? In the United States, 5% of the population have 20% of the income, and the bottom 20% have 5% of the income. I think this is This important. seems to me, I know that you, you revel in no, that I, kind of inequality. No. I think it's only because this business I, is based upon you it. You see, I believe that freedom breeds inequality. Uh, and that, say uh, that again. A, a freedom breeds inequality. Now, I'll say it a uh, third time. No, twice yeah. is no. enough. Uh, unless, I think you unless, made your point. Unless yes. you have freedom to be unequal, there is no such thing as freedom. What can I say? Not you much. Have, you, you've <laughs> given that ghastly position once again yeah. of the well-to-do and the, of those who inherit money and believe that others do not. This must somehow achieve equality. But in actual fact, you're going to have a revolution if you don't give the people the things they want. Now, I'm putting it to your own self-interest. They're going to come and take it away from you. Again, that's William Buckley and Gore Vidal. This is 1968, so those figures about inequality are wrong, of course, but uh, it's vastly different today, vastly worse today. What do you think of that, uh, that particular clip, uh, Rob Larson? 
Uh, that's a real nice one to pull out, man. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, my first thought is, man, that's the difference that 40 years makes. Uh, back then, they would invite Gore Vidal to debate at the National Republican Convention. That's the New Deal era for you. Uh, <laughs> a bygone era now, obviously. Well, that's ABC's uh, choice. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure, liberal yeah. media made yeah. it happen. Right. Well, that's interesting, you know, because that's classic uh, Buckley. It's a very that's a great version of a traditional argument, right? So the like you could boil that down saying, without inequality, we don't have real freedom. People need the ability to outcompete one another and have the incentive of being richer than one another for them to be productive and to give their best. And uh, in my book, I quote Frederick Hayek, who makes a similar argument at a little more length, but it's kind of a classic right-wing view. But this, to me, really shows how often their own world conservatives are when it comes to this idea of freedom. And it makes it so hilarious that they feel like they own the issue today. So the claim is, without the ability to become richer and better off than your fellow workers, you won't work hard, you won't be incentivized to uh, give your best. That's amazing. As people get wealthier, when people build up the large, vast fortunes of today, you know, we're not talking about people making 10 times what you, the average person makes. We're talking about them making hundreds of times that. And soon they have personal fortunes in the hundreds of millions or, you know, in the modern as, as you said, the modern numbers, we have a number of multi-billionaires. You know, Jeff Bezos has many billions of dollars. Well, the thing is, inequality on this totally unregulated market-based scale gives people power. I mean, who can deny that Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or any billionaire you want, who can deny that they have more power than the man on the street with a you know typical blue or white collar middle class salary? If you have a huge amount of money, you can invest in a city and change its economy and lift it up. Or you can pull all your investments out of a city and utterly destroy it, like in, say, Detroit. In the power that's in your hands when you have today's fantastic pyramids of money, it's a very real thing, you know. And uh, what I would say with that is that, again, using Friedman and Hayek's own logic about power and freedom, you know, the issue of what freedom is is a big, complex question. But I go with what Friedman says in his uh, book, which is, you know, the short version is, if we expand freedom, that means constricting power centers, constraining what they can do. If we limit the power of powerful people or institutions, that leaves more scope for us to have our negative freedom. Just going by that, inequality directly undermines this basic negative view of freedom. If Jeff Bezos has the ability to decide which North American cities get to have a future, I'm sorry, that's power. If I'm Rupert Murdoch and I use my billions of dollars to buy up a media empire, and now I own Fox News, and I decide what America's elderly, angry people are going to hear all the time, if that's not influence or power, I don't know what is. And using their logic, building up these huge fortunes of inequality. And a lot of that wealth, of course, is corporate stock. It's the wealthier households that own the corporate world. They own most of the corporate equity in tech and finance and healthcare and everywhere else in our economy. Like that gives those classes of people fantastic power and influence over our society. So Buckley can say, well, without freedom, why would anyone work hard? Hmm, we need it for that's inequality is where freedom comes from. The reality is the opposite. Inequality leads to powerful, rich douchebags that then use their incredible influence 
to steer our society. And they're the ones in the driver's seat, not us, you know. And, of course, the current president is one of those characters, after all, lest we forget. <laughs> so to me, I mean, this argument of Buckley's – Buckley is supposed to be this great, you know, intellectual figure on the right. If you read his work, it's not much to write home about. And one of the most annoying things, uh, just to mention this, is, of course, Friedman and Buckley – both died uh, within a few years of the great financial crisis 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I believe uh, Friedman died in 20, uh, 2007 and Buckley in 2006. I might have those backwards. But they both died just in time to avoid seeing everything that they claimed completely fall apart. It's uh, frustrating sometimes. <laughs> this is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Rob Larson, author of Capitalism Versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom, published by Zero Books. Uh, so one of the issues that is clear there is the sort of the terms that that they talk about is is that corporate power isn't a problem or uh, it's something they pay lip service to perhaps, right? Monopoly power perhaps. But generally their arguments are all government-centric, right? They're the, it's Indeed. the government that, that you have to worry about versus the idea that corporations like Amazon are worse, scarier, or actually the government serves Amazon. The government serves Google. The government serves these corporations rather than the other way around. That's true. And uh, yeah, moving past this issue of inequality amongst each of us in terms of money, the other big form of power within our capitalist marketplace is, of course, your giant firms. The giant companies are these days corporations mostly that uh, dominate global markets. The ability of the right to just blithely ignore this is pretty jaw-dropping, yeah. Because these firms, I mean, my God, the amount of power that they have is fantastic. And this was true with Wall Street and just with classic manufacturing. I always like to refer people back to the Gilded Age, right? The late 19th century, the late 1800s, you know. And I talk about this a little bit in the first chapter of my book. Uh, Back in that era, you had no progressive income tax. You had very little industrial regulation and basically no environmental laws except for some cities and no pesky labor unions either. It's a pure laissez-faire free market economy. So I guess it was a nice, equal, competitive setting, right? It's the golden age of friggin' monopoly. <laughs> Rockefeller's oil monopoly and Carnegie's steel monopoly and Morgan's Wall Street Banking Trust monopolies and appliances, cigarettes. Like that is the reality of marketplaces. When firms merge together, like there's a number of reasons why markets stop being competitive with lots of tiny players. Some markets do stay that way over time. Markets produce very different products, so you get a variety of performances over time. But very commonly, in industries that have big upfront costs and are characterized by what we call economies of scale, those are outright incentives for firms to get bigger, to buy competitors or merge with them or maybe outcompete them, sure, in order to get bigger, to get to a bigger scale, to get more profitable. But now you've got maybe two or three gigantic firms, which we call an oligopoly, or full-on monopolies, which again is what happened when we let the the market system be on its own back in that era. Mm -hmm. Now, these days, it's only being repeated. The book I'm writing right now, (laughs) my next one, is about Silicon Valley and the big tech companies. Facebook and Google are borderline monopolies themselves after only a few years of their markets even existing because of these phenomena called network effects where 
in order for the communication on these platforms to work, you need a uniform standard, which encourages a single firm setting that standard. The point is, across industries, markets very commonly want to conglomerate and you get a couple gigantic firms or even full-on monopolists. If you pick up these guys' books, again, Friedman and Hayek's books, the their willingness to write off monopoly is impressive. Like Friedman, I believe, spends four or five pages on the entire subject of monopoly, and he suggests that it's not a big problem. Hayek says that the claim of market concentration is just a Marxist conceit, even though any Harvard Business School economist like Joseph Chandler, who is incredibly respected among business figures and who I quote in the book a lot, he comments on it very openly. Like these guys are just admitting that they're not literate even on business economic literature, you know? But the point is, yeah, they are willing to blow it off because they want to defend the marketplace. You kind of realize these guys' thinking is more based on defending something rather than being a real scientist and kind of dispassionately looking at its up and downsides, you know. And what you said, man, uh, is especially relevant when they do, when these conservative thinkers do bring up monopoly power in their books or discuss the problems it creates, almost without exception, it's a state monopoly. You know, a government monopoly. And those exist, of course, but they don't make up the majority of our economy. We have a market economy where most productive property is privately owned. But it's true, uh, you know, like in conservative economics, there's this idea called dealing with what they call the calculation problem and how markets figure out how to produce so efficiently. And the idea is that markets aggregate data about what is scarce and what is plentiful. And all that information is represented whenever you buy something in the price, like the price of gas. Gasoline has the abundance of fracking gas and OPEC cutbacks and all these things represented in the price. But they do admit, Friedman admits in his book, that there are limits to this when you have monopolies because prices might be high for gas because there's a limited supply or because some monopolist is able to push up the price this week. And the example he gives is OPEC. Mm. OPEC, of course, the oil cartel, right? The old oil cartel, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, which, of course, is made up of governments. That is the only example of cartels that he gives. Mm. He has plenty that he could have referred to from the marketplace. And it's not even like he brings them up and then ignores them. They just don't even appear in the manuscript. This is what I this is why I say sometimes these thinkers the more you read of them and you, the more you look at what they're willing to criticize and the power centers they're willing to talk about and the ones they're not, you gradually realize these guys aren't like, yeah, just passionate social scientists. They're de- defenders of power. Right. They're intellectual opportunists looking to cover up the smelly aspects of some big institution. <laughs> right. Well, there's an interesting metaphysic in the idea of price holding that information. But we'll talk about that when we come back from another break. This is uh-huh. Kiss Me, Son of God by They Might Be Giants off the 1988 album Lincoln. When we come back, as I said, we're going to look at price metaphysics. I just made that up. I hope it's a real thing. Stay with us for more <laughs> Capitalism versus Freedom with Rob Larson on Interchange. Called the blood of the exploited working class But they've overcome their shyness Now they're calling me your highness And the world's free Kiss me, son of God I destroyed the bond of friendship and respect Between the only people left Who'd even look me in the eye 
Now I laugh and make a fortune off the same ones that I tortured And the world screams, kiss me, son of God I look like Jesus, so they say But Mr. Jesus is very far away Support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. You can explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com. We'll return you to Interchange here on WFHB. And the world screams, kiss me, son of God. Yes, the world screams, kiss me, son of God. Welcome back to Interchange. Our guest today via Skype is Rob Larson, author of the new book, Capitalism Versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom. Uh, we went to the break. We were talking about the, the I guess we could call it the disingenuous ways in which uh, Milton Friedman, uh, Friedrich Hayek, perhaps uh, uh, Ludwig von Mises, perhaps uh, as specifically Ayn Rand, all a particular argue in a way that doesn't seem to actually show that they are interested in telling truths, but rather supporting ideologies and business um, people, for the most part, business systems. Um, so I, I talked about, a, or I asked, I suppose, if there's such a thing as a price metaphysic. It seems like generally we're talking about a kind of metaphysic when we talk markets and prices. It's true. And uh, if you look at some of the work of these exact thinkers, there's a lot on that. Uh, Hayek uh, is one of his great works is considered to be this article he wrote for the American Economic Review uh, uh, talking about how markets arrive at prices. And the idea is that this is a fantastically efficient thing. We, you know, we used the example of gas earlier, so we'll stick with that. Like to make the gasoline that you put in your car, it's an incredibly complex, confusing technical project process with the, you know, the material going through a number of companies, you know, from drillers to refiners, through big pipelines to commercial gas distributors where you can gas up at a pump. And it's a big complex process and there's a huge amount of different supply and demand pro, you know, uh, developments happening in every one of those markets that your gasoline or your car or your smartphone goes through. And the idea is there's no way to deal with all that information and any kind of non-capitalist attempt to organize the economy is going to struggle with that. But with capitalism, you have just markets. And so all this information winds up in the price. If there's uh, technical difficulties in the fracking drill pads across the United States, gasoline in Indiana is going to get more expensive because there's a more restricted supply of petroleum that we then use to make the motor fuels. You know, And so the idea is because markets are transmitting information based on that relative scarcity of different goods and services, they summarize all this information for you, and all you need to do is see the price point. And this is Hayek's big argument, and most economists will explain this is why no form of socialism could ever work, because how are you going to deal with all this complicated process and all of this information? But it's such a fraud for several reasons, right? I mean, one is the one we just mentioned. If you have giant companies, 
in any market, you know, in any stage of the markets that our modern project products go through on their way to us, then maybe the price is going up because there's a you know a, a limit on the supply of the product, or maybe because some company has cornered a piece of the market and they feel like shoving the price up today. Like that's a possibility that they at least briefly acknowledge. But uh, it's even really worse than that. Just to mention, uh, in chapter four of my book, I kind of take a little bit of a departure from the rest. Most of this book is about showing the forms of power that we have within capitalism, because according to the right's definition, powerful institutions limit freedom. But in chapter four, I sort of look a little down the road and I look at the issue of the environment. You know, if we destroy an, an environment somewhere, that means all future generations to come will not be able to enjoy it because those species are extinct. The ecosystem is taken apart. You know, you can't just reassemble those things like on Jurassic Park. So what we find is that if we look at the issue this way, if we destroy the future environment, that is a gigantic violation of, again, just the negative freedom of those future generations, let alone their positive freedom, you know. And so Hayek and Friedman can make these claims that uh, markets give us nice information and they summarize it all so perfectly into price, into price points, and isn't that fantastic? Well, yeah, you know, it's relatively easy to claim your social system has solved a problem if you ignore half of the problem. When you gas up, you're paying a price that covers the cost of production of that gas and gives profit margins to the oil refiners and the retailers and the drillers, right? But you're not paying any price for what you're doing to the climate, right? which is a big deal because <laughs> that climate change has so many effects on so many people in so many different ways right now and down many generations to come, according to the scientists who are studying this. So all I did in chapter four was I just took a look uh, just to get a reference point uh, I went with the year 2100, you know, the end of this century, because scientists, it turns out this worked well. Uh, scientists are usually looking for you know, a, a future time just to use as a benchmark to see where we'll be at that point in the road. Uh, and I've got a lot of scientific literature quoted in there. You know, I got my bachelor's degree in biology from Indiana U. Uh, and it's serving me well because I can write horrifying things like the fourth chapter of my book. <laughs> it's pretty rough. And, I mean, you can read about it. There's things that are obvious like rising temperatures and sea level rise, which are serious enough. Looking at the freedom of people to live in major coastal cities, that will be impinged upon the way we're going. But also areas like the ability of crops, of cropland to keep producing food for a growing population – is expected to be impacted, not just from less water, but from the higher temperatures themselves. And if people think today we've got a global migration problem, you have no idea what the scientists say is coming. Large parts of the tropical world are going to become uninhabitable for the summer months. What this means for us is global upheaval that we really don't know how to deal with yet. And this is why we want to get in front of this issue if we want to preserve freedom into the future. But my reason for bringing this up, of course, is that you know, how is this incorporated into this wonderful pricing that we have in the marketplace? It isn't, you know, except to the tiny extent that government maybe puts a tax on gas like France tried to do. Uh, that could put a little bit of that into your price calculations. But that's all after the marketplace, you know. So if we want to really open up the issue of freedom, it only looks uh, worse the deeper we look. Yeah, we uh, we had a, a discussion on uh, the photographer and uh, essayist Alan Sekula uh, talking about uh, logistics, you know, and the idea of that uh, information and logistics uh, shipping is efficient, 
right? The idea that you can ship mm. stuff all over the place uh, from China, you know, but uh, wood shipped to China comes back toothpicks and you sell them. Uh, even though you got the wood in Minnesota, it's China that processed it and you sell it in the United States. And it's an efficiency for whoever's making money off the toothpicks. Um, but yes. for, the, for the most part, it's an inefficiency. And for the most part, it has to deal with those externalities, right? That are, that are not considered in terms of those consequences of, of everything that happens along that shipping system. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, externalities are basically economic side effects. And so we have a market economy. We decide what to produce based on supply and demand, you know, which means market transactions. Well, if you have a transaction where someone is affected who's not part of that transaction, they're external to it. We call that an externality, yeah. So if your island country is about to be submerged under the rising ocean waters because people in Europe, um, the United States and China refuse to cut back on our constant carbon emissions from generating power to yeah, how we drive and ship the products and everything else, you are definitely affected by it even though you had no role in the transaction. And again, Freeman and Hayek in their books are willing to bring the subject up. Hayek is a little less oblivious about it than Friedman. He's willing to admit that deforestation, industrial smoke and pollution may need some real government regulation. Like Hayek, of course, was writing in mid-century Europe, and his audience kind of requires him to be a little bit more amenable to government regulation of the market in specific cases where he feels he's kind of cornered. But Friedman has no problem with that. And so if you pick up these conservative thinkers, when they bring up this issue of externalities, which again ranged from secondhand smoke to the fact that kids who grow up by interstates are far more likely to develop asthma because they're inhaling car exhaust all the time, all the way up to climate change itself, which holds all of our futures in its, you know, all of our futures are at stake there. Right. Friedman, Friedman, like most conservatives, he refers to externalities in these cutesy terms that economists have developed to minimize the problem. And it's a friggin' outrage how they describe these things. They like to call them things like neighborhood effects. Right. So, oh, there's a, a, you know, a coal plant or a garbage incinerator near my neighborhood, and it makes the air somewhat unpleasant on certain days. Oh, it's a neighborhood effect. Oh, that's a small issue. <laughs> or they'll call them spillovers, which is kind of cute. Like, oh, I spilled my coffee on myself. <laughs> oh, no. Like, it's just trivializing crap. Because, I mean, my God, this is the future of our civilization that we're looking at, according to every scientist who looks at the subject. And again, this is the United States. We love scientific products. We love fancy new medical treatments. We love fancy new information technologies that let us put everything about ourselves up on our vain social media profiles. This is a tech-loving country until scientists say, you know, if we don't uh, tax the millionaires to change the way our energy system works, we're going to have serious problems. Suddenly, everyone's a scientist. And they're far too smart to listen to what all these scientists are saying. They suddenly don't believe in typical scientific consensus, which is totally fine for them when they're developing, you know, heart medication or fun new cell phone apps. But as soon as it's something we don't care for, oh, I think that's disputed. You know, I heard somewhere the oil industry has a scientist who doesn't believe in it. So it's disputed. Right. It's a, kind of an obnoxious thing. But yeah, the tendency on the right is to minimize it in any way they can think of. Yeah, well, it just, it of course, bring, you know, calls the lie of what's going on here, right? So it's, it's not about freedom. It's about power, as you say, generally. It's about power and wealth and how it funnels upward. Uh, and these are arguments that support 
support the freedom for for the powerful. Uh, libertarian freedom is freedom from everyone bothering you and freedom to do whatever you want, right? So Yeah, and that's that's a really important point too. Uh yes, like you said, you know, like it is kind of all about protecting the freedom of these institutions or their power of these institutions. But remember, like all these authors say, and I agree, like when you have powerful institutions, that limits our freedom. You know, uh, Facebook and Google know huge amounts about us and they refuse to disclose how much they know and to stop tracking us. Like they might let you opt out of seeing ads, but they'll continue to track your ass. Like this is power being exerted over us. And you're exactly right. And that's an important point. It's when done. they talk about this stuff, they'll say, well, that's, you know, we should be free. And that's sort of what Buckley was saying, too. You have to be free to do all these things and create these new technologies. So shouldn't Amazon, shouldn't you know, Google be free to track everything you do online, which they do? Shouldn't Amazon be free to crush tiny upstart competitors? When you talk about people or institutions that have power over others, but you describe it as, you know, it's all about their freedom. Well, they don't have a legitimate freedom to tell other people what to do. Slave owners defended their ownership of men and women and selling their children off. They defended that as, well, that's freedom. The Constitution says I'm supposed to be free and I want to be free to sell off these black people as property. We don't recognize that as being freedom. The way philosophers describe that is hegemonic freedom. You call it freedom, but it's power you have over someone else. And when, you know, the British aristocrats were having their power taken away, uh, you know, when the slave owners in the United States lost their ability to own people, they all said, this is a terrible crime against freedom. No, it isn't. It's a crime against your power. You shouldn't be free to have power over people. That's not legitimate negative freedom. That's hegemonic freedom. It's freedom for you to have power over others. But it's always their first defense. You're taking away my freedom to decide who lives and dies. Like, no, 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 that's power. You shouldn't have that kind of freedom. (laughs) It's It's time for our final break. It's time for our final break. This is when the idle poor become the idle rich from the 1947 musical (laughs) Finian's Rainbow. It was written by blacklisted lyricist Yip Harburg, a member of the Socialist Party. He also wrote Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. When the idle poor become the idle rich, you'll never know just who is who or who is which. Won't it be rich? When everyone's poor relative becomes a rocker relative and palms no longer itch. What a switch! When we all have vermin and plastic teeth, how will we determine who's who underneath? And when all your neighbors are upper class, you won't know your Joneses from your Astors. Let's toast the day, the day we drink our drinky up, but with a little pinky up. The day on which the idle poor become the idle rich. When a rich man doesn't want to work, he's a bon vivant. Yes, he's a bon vivant. But when a poor man doesn't want to work He's a loafer, he's a lounger, he's a lazy good-for-nothing He's a jerk! When a rich man loses on a horse Isn't he the sport? Oh, isn't he the sport? But when a poor man loses on a horse He's a gambler, he's a spender, he's a lowlife He's a reason for divorce
Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. You'll never know just who is which When the idle poor become the idle rich When the idle poor become the idle rich When the idle poor become the idle rich You'll never know just who is who or who is which Irish or the Slav in you For when you're on Park Avenue Cornelius and Mike Look alike When poor Tweedledum Is rich Tweedledee This discrimination Will no longer be When we're in the dough And off of the nut You won't know your banker From your butler Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. For our final segment with author Rob Larson, we're going to turn toward the light, and that means socialism. But first, let's hear one more time from Milton Friedman about equality. From Victorian novelists to modern reformers, a favorite device to stir our emotions is to contrast extremes of wealth and of poverty we are expected to conclude that the rich are responsible for the deprivations of the poor. That they are rich at the expense of the poor. Whether it is in the slums of New Delhi or in the affluence of Las Vegas, it simply isn't fair that there should be any losers. Life is unfair. There's nothing fair about one man being born blind and another man being born with sight. There's nothing fair about one man being born of a wealthy parent and one of an impecunious parent. There's nothing fair about Muhammad Ali having been born with a skill that enables him to make millions of dollars one night. There's nothing fair about Marlena Dietrich having great legs that we all want to watch. There's nothing fair about any of that. But on the other hand, Don't you think a lot of people who like to look at Marlena Dietrich's legs benefited from nature's unfairness in producing a Marlena Dietrich? What kind of a world would it be if everybody was an absolute identical duplicate of anybody else? You might as well destroy the whole world and just keep one specimen left for a museum. In the same way, it's unfair that Muhammad Ali should be a great fighter and should be able to earn millions. But would it not be even more unfair to the people who like to watch him. If you said that in the pursuit of some abstract ideal of equality, we're not gonna let Muhammad Ali get more for one night's fight than the lowest man on the totem pole can get for a day's unskilled work on the docks. You could do that, but the result of that would be to deny people the opportunity to watch Muhammad Ali. I doubt very much that he would be willing to subject himself to the kind of fights he's gone through if he were to get the pay of an unskilled docker. Again, that's Milton Friedman giving us his view of life being unfair. Hey, it's unfair, kids. Um, And I guess telling us he likes Marlena Dietrich. Um, So, Rob Larson, life is unfair and capitalism just is playing that game, man. 
Yes, that's great. You know, uh, it's always good to let big thinkers give themselves an opportunity to be creeps. I feel like uh, Milton really <laughs> didn't let us down there. He did. He even uh, chuckled at one point. <laughs> yes. He's capable of joy and laughter as mm-hmm. long as it involves objectifying the female body. That's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, and this is, of course, a claim that you'll hear if you ever speak to a conservative. It definitely has not gone away. You know, life isn't fair. You can't expect everyone to be precisely equal because, and this is true, of course, you know, we are all individuals. Some of us are born taller than others. Some of us are handsomer. Some of us are better at algebra. Some of us are better at math or sports or medicine. We're all individuals. And so it's unreasonable for you crazy socialists to be insisting that all people should be equal because we're all individuals. If I'm just better at making a billion dollars than you, then you should let that happen. That's just what life is, you know. This is sort of the classic argument. I mean, the very first thing to realize there, I mean, it always starts in all of Friedman and Hayek's books as well. They make this claim. Like it starts with like natural differences that we humans have no control over, nor really should we, because we're all born as different people with our own unique genes and our own unique upbringing. However, that doesn't justify us then having a social system that lets us be as crazily powerful over one another as we're able to get away with. I mean, Friedman's argument there, you really could use to justify the power of kings, you know? And after all, that's what they did. You know, when you have kings and aristocrats or dictators today, like Erdogan or the king of Saudi Arabia, you know, or Prince MBS, they always say, well, you should, people should know their place. I'm superior to you. I'm born into a great family, or I clawed my way up in the marketplace and I betrayed my friends more aggressively and now I'm powerful. And we're supposed to accept this. That's just as much a part of human variety as the fact that people, you know, have different races and different, uh, you know, intelligences and different individual characteristics that they're good at and so on. It's the, a totally outrageous claim. Like you can use this to justify anyone having power over anyone else. Yeah, well, clearly, Rob, you want to speak to socialism and, and how socialism perhaps does support freedom. For sure. Indeed. And this is uh, yeah, the last chapter of my book looks at how can we try to build a social system, especially an economic system, that does give us the freedom that capitalism claims to do, right? That would actually give us positive and negative liberty. And the first thing we ought to say, I mean, anytime people talk about socialism, you know, again, I come out of the sciences, the way we abuse our political terms is so... Uh, rampant, you know, liberalism can mean you're a liberal FDR Democrat, or it can mean you're a libertarian. They use the word classical liberal. And likewise, socialism, you could be a Stalinist, you could be a Bernie Sanders Democrat, you could be a Noam Chomsky libertarian socialist. So the first thing is we want to be careful about what we what we mean, like scientists do. And the first thing to think of there is that the traditional idea of socialism was worker control over the means of production, right? When you go to work, you and your co-workers decide what you're going to produce, how it's going to be done, and you're going to have to coordinate with the other workers that give you your raw materials and then you know, use your products to make some final product for people to consume. And you'll have access to the information that management and bosses usually keep for themselves. Well, if you look at it that way, and in my book, I look at a couple possible blueprints for socialist economies in detail. I feel like we should have an experimental approach. Different countries and industries are going to want to organize differently if we go down the road of socialism. But if we have workforce control, that means it won't be up to Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates 
uh, Warren Buffett to decide what industries get invested in and what the future economy looks like and whether or not we get to have insurance. It should be democratically decided. You and your coworkers should decide how production happens through representation and communication with other industries. And the big economic decisions in our society should be subject to some kind of democratic oversight or control so that we don't have a tiny number of horrible jerks who are good at betraying one another and you know, crushing competitors and rising up industries and, and industries and often are born rich. It shouldn't be their decision. And if we had control over that, it would give us both positive freedom in the form that we could then have a right to health care and education, enough basic food and services to get by, and we'd be free of the power plays of huge corporate capital, which decide what happens in our lives today. So if we want more freedom, you should take a look at different ideas about socialism. There's a lot happening with that these days. And my book is one way to begin looking at some of those issues. Oh, thanks, Rob. Freedom from crony capitalism, other kinds of capitals, freedom to uh, decide together how we work. Indeed. And I think that that is something that is more and more achievable these days as we're kind of having a socialist moment. All right. Thanks so much. That's our show. And I'll close with a quote that opens Rob Larson's book. This is from Eugene V. Debs in 1897. We have been cursed with the reign of gold long enough. And with that, Neil Young takes us home with After the Gold Rush from 1970. Thank you, Rob Larson. Word. Rob Larson is a professor of economics at Tacoma Community College in Washington State and author of Bleakonomics and most recently Capitalism versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom, published by Zero Books. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Our studio engineer and executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Singing and drummers drumming and the archers split the tree. There was a fanfare blowing to the sun that was floating on the breeze. Look at Mother Nature on the run in the 1970s. I was lying in a burned-out basement With the full moon in my eyes I was hoping for replacement When the sun burst through the sky There was a band playing in my head And I felt like getting Was hoping it was a lie.